from a world um, perspective, a global feeding perspective, we just have more and more people that need to be fed. And we have some populations worldwide that are are gaining enough um, income, higher income status that they they have more desire for beef products. And so so we have a growing need for protein for humans and we have shrinking acres that we can do it on essentially. So, so the cow, the confined cow calf thing just really came out of a lot of that, um, you know, some empty feedlot pens here and there and some, um, different systems that we could put together that in some way or another would utilize annual forages and, uh, residues, that kind of thing. So whether that's, being able to use some of that cornstalk residue for grazing and some cover crops, you know, in between there, and then some confinement time in the summer when Sandhills cows would be out on pasture, or if that's harvesting those and then feeding in the pens. A whole new era of communication in the beef industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global beef industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to the farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. Contact us for time and labor-saving solutions. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. Welcome to the Beef Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global beef industry. Welcome to the Beef Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Brandy Buzzard, and it's my pleasure to bring you the trending issues and topics with the best and brightest minds of the beef industry. Today, we are joined by Dr. Carla Wilkie, Professor of Cow-Calf and Stalker Management at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. Dr. Wilkie earned her bachelor's degree in agriculture education at Texas A&M University and her master's and her PhD in ruminant nutrition at the University of Nebraska. Her professional career has taken her from Tennessee to Texas and back to Nebraska, and I'm really looking forward to talking to her today. So let's get started. Dr. Wilkie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, we are excited to have you. I know that you and I have had to uh, reschedule a couple times because of my technology issues, but we are back online and, and just excited to have you and talk about your perspective and, and role in the beef industry. So to start off with, can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the beef industry in your career path so far? I know I touched on a very few points in your bio and that that's not an all encompassing. So whatever you care to share with us from that point, we'd love to hear more. Well, I grew up um, outside of Amarillo, Texas, on an integrated um, farm, dry land farming operation where we also ran stalker cattle. And uh, we had a few cow-calf mainly. That was for training purposes for the kids more so than an enterprise because um, in the farming country there, it just made more sense to run stalker cattle. And so I, I probably, you know, developed my interest in the beef industry as a child there doing that. And, um, and, um, from there that just developed both the, the cow calf side of that and the stalker, um, and, and the, in the feedlot industry too, just all the segments really, um, it's where that kind of developed. And so then, uh, I, I guess additionally, because my dad also had, uh, a research job. He was a research technician for Texas A&M at Bushland. And um, so, you know, I got to see a lot of the how research is conducted, how we come up with the the answers that we give producers. It was kind of fascinating to me. And so I guess I just kind of put all those growing up background things together when I went to school and, and kind of took this career path. And, um, and so now um, I've been the cow-calf and stalker management specialist for UNL out here in the Panhandle for almost 15 years. And um, and then in addition to that, I am married to a farmer who also has integrated um, cropping and livestock systems, um, but it with some irrigation and things, so it makes it a little different. And so we, 
Um, we also run um, mama cows in confinement and semi-confinement. And then we were able to use um, corn silage and wet distillers and residues and things to, to feed them when they're not on pasture. And so I kind of, I, I really don't know where my personal life and where my professional life kind of where one starts and one ends. Cause it's pretty blurred for me. Yeah. So you mentioned this, it, you, you're just speaking here that you're, you and your husband have cows in confinement and semi confinement when they're not um, on pasture. And so that's something, you know, that's one of the things that you've focused on in your career and your kind of your career expertise. So let's, can we dig into that a little bit more? You know, like if you could share that with us, cause I, I don't, I can't speak for the whole beef industry, but I am not, you know, when I think of Nebraska, I think of, I think of corn farming and I think of cattle in the sand hills and such. So I, I don't necessarily go to confinement and semi-confinement. So maybe you could speak about that. For right. Us. And, and you're just like everybody else. That's, that's <laughs> pretty much, you know, what your thought is. It's either Nebraska's corn or it's the sand hills. But when you look at the Midwest in general, upper Midwest in general, they have just consistently lost pasture acres through the years to farm production and to urbanization, things like that. And yet from a world um, perspective, a global feeding perspective, we just have more and more people that need to be fed. And we have some populations worldwide that are are gaining enough um, income, higher income status that they they have more desire for beef products, and so so we have a growing need for protein for humans, and we have shrinking acres that we can do it on essentially. So so the cow the confined cow calf thing just really came out of a lot of that. Um, you know, some empty feedlot pens here and there and some um, different systems that we could put together that in some way or another would utilize annual forages and uh, residues, that kind of thing. So whether that's being able to use some of that cornstalk residue for grazing and some cover crops, you know, in between there and then some confinement time in the summer when Sandhills cows would be out on pasture or if that's harvesting those and then feeding in the pens. Um, there was just lots and lots of questions. And so I've, I've focused um, since about 2010 on doing research on this. And then I think it's, I think it's helpful that we have our own cows and, and we do some of these things with them because you really kind of find out that there's things that you can do in a research setting that, that work pretty well. But then when you go to translate that to an actual producer's system that there's adaptations that need to be made to that. And so I guess that's kind of helped me in the extension side of my job to help producers more when I'm like, okay, so how we ended up doing this was, you know, so, so yeah, so we have both, um, we have a spring herd of cows that do spend a little bit of time on grass. We do have limited grass, so they don't, they don't spend as much time out there as um, a typical, you know, Sandhills herd would on grass. And then we have a fall cow, fall calving cow group that never does go out to grass. They're actually in confinement 100%. We have a time and labor saving product for you. Beef and Dairy Agrislat by Healthy Farms is your solution. No more lugging jugs around the barn every month. With Beef and Dairy Agrislat, you simply drop the slat through the floor twice a year and it works to break down solids reduces crusting and forming. To learn more, visit MyHealthyFarms.com. And so when you're speaking about, I, I, I completely understand where you're, uh, you know, where the the need or the necessity for this, that confinement and semi-confinement came from, you know, when you're talking about how we have a, I was writing that down when you were talking. Um, we have this growing, you know, as other countries grow their income like they want to increase the the quality of the food they're eating and beef is often one of the things they want to incorporate into more diet so we that beef demand is not going away um, but unfortunately the the availability of pasture land i don't think that that is a phenomenon that is uh oh, what's the word i'm looking for that is only in nebraska you know that's happening everywhere in cattle country so it totally makes sense why that was developed um when you're speaking about confinement, so those cows are like dry lotted, 
you know, year round. Is that way, you know, that's the confinement there? That that could be part of a system. The neat thing about the confinement cow feeding thing is it it can totally be tailored to the resources that a person has. And I guess another situation um, that comes up frequently where cows might need to be confined part of the year is drought. And we have a lot of that going around. And so um, a lot of that is just trying to help producers figure out how to, with the resources they have, um, you know, how can we either, yes, feed them in dry lot. Um, honestly, we feed cows in our equipment lot at home, which sounds kind of goofy, but, you know, actually this time of year, it's working pretty good for the fall cows because there's lots of things the calves can get under for shade. So I got some oh, drills, I got an old yeah. combine, you know, um, but that's just a lot that's not going to be used for anything else anyway. Um, granted, you do have to be kind of careful what you park out there because they do like to chew on wires. But, um, but you know, um, we have pasture bunks so they can eat on either side of it. Um, and, and you can put the, the ration in there. Um, we have some pens where it's a, a inline bunk. Um, and so maybe they're in there. We've had producers feed out on corn stalks, um, you know, just feed on the ground, maybe along a hot fence or something, you know, shoot it under the hot fence so the cows don't lay in it and things. Um, but just, you know, a pivot corner, um, it, it doesn't have to be. Sometimes when we say confinement feeding, that's immediately where people go. They assume they have to be in a feedlot with a feed truck, with, you know, with the fence line bunks, that kind of thing. And, and that's pretty handy, but that's not the only way, I guess, is what I'm trying to point out out of that. Yeah, well, and, and again, that's a facility it can be a limitation. Not everybody has, uh, you know, a lot pen with inline bunks. So hearing, you know, your solutions that you're advising people either through extension or, you know, other outlets, how they can do that. I, that must be very, I feel like that's helpful to people to hear this from you. It is. And, and, you know, years and years ago in the Midwest, everything was a farmer feeder. Uh, all the feedlots were a smaller farmer feeder. And as feedlots have grown um, and, and a lot of cattle are fed in 50,000 head capacity lots or more, um, or at least 15,000 or whatever. There's a lot of those lots that were designed for 1,000 to 5,000 head uh, that are really not being used that much for that. And so, you know, when we start talking about bringing somebody home, how are we going to expand the operation so it supports another family? You know, if people start looking at those pens that aren't in the best of condition but could use a little fixing up, but, you know, we don't really have the pasture or we can't afford the pasture to expand, to bring home the kid that wants to come home now or whatever, um, you know, starting to think outside the box for some of those facilities. Um, well, could we modify them a little bit and put pears in there or, you know, um, whatever. And so, you know, those are just some of the things that, um, it's just sometimes the whole confinement cow thing, people think, no, cows belong out on grass. And, you know, and I don't disagree. I wish we could all do that, but it's just not as feasible today as I wish it was. Right. And I think that that's just, I mean, there's just perception and we kind of get tend to get in, I, I think all beef producers to some extent, we focus on like, it's hard for us to think outside our own farm gate, you know, like think that there's things outside that, but I think, um, I don't know who I heard say this. So I, if they're listening, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to like, <laughs> you know, like there's a thousand, there's a thousand ways to raise cattle, right? Like there's 50 beef or beef cattle are in all 50 States. And I mean, Absolutely. just even within, even within a state cattle are raised differently. Like the way we run cows is different than the way they run cows at the Western end of Kansas. You're in Nebraska, the way cow, you know, you guys run cows clearly as you explained different than a lot of other people. And so, I think that because the beef industry is so, you know, it's not diverse. Um, yeah, very it's diverse. very diverse. It's not like a vertical chain, you know, like poultry or pork. It's it's very diverse. People, we can be very segmented and, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And that allows us to to change things. And so I think it's good for people to hear other perspectives. It's not bad to have cows in confinement. It's just a way to manage them using the resources that you have available. There's And there's a couple of things I think that, that really, with the exception of if you're doing it short term because you're in a drought, I mean, there's things we can do there. But um, one of the things that I always work with people on is doing some limit feeding 
so it's it's very it's feeding nutrient dense diets that meet their needs, but um, you're not feeding them as much. It's not at lib feeding. So it's kind of like I was explaining it to people like it's it's eating a piece of pie versus eating two bags of carrots. You know, I mean, like, so I'm not eating as much, but I'm getting absolutely all the calories I need. Those are probably not really good examples because one has nutrition in it and one's just junk. But point being, you know, you can, you have a condensed um, nutrient. In that case, maybe it's just calories, but uh, in a smaller piece. And so if we do a little about of that, we waste a little less feed and, and maybe we get away with um, feeding a little less and then trying to use some of those feed resources that may be cheaper, like, you know, we can mix something like wet distillers in with some ground corn stock residue that's kind of cruddy stuff anyway. You know, we can still meet her needs and we're not feeding her alfalfa or, you know, the higher costing feeds as much. So we look at those kinds of things. And then the other thing, if you're doing it as a system, I try to get people to kind of think through their paradigm and and maybe this is not where we go out and we develop the best quality heifer and we try to take her all the way through the system like we do on grass you know um this goes back to our other topic was managing cull cows a little bit and it's 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 managing cow depreciation because if i am going to have a little more feed cost in them or a little more labor cost you know in in this then um, do I use an older cow that maybe doesn't fit the range system anymore, but now I'm handing her her feed already ground and mixed, you know, maybe I get three more calves out of her in this system. And so, you know, looking at some of those things that if I have more costs here because of this, you know, where else can I maybe shave those costs a little bit? Um, that's one of the reasons that we run both the spring and the fall herd is that we spread our bull cost over those two, you know, so we're trying to kind of find those places that you do that a little bit. But the other thing that I would encourage people to think about is look at that cost. You know, if, if I can make this diet, slimmit fed diet with some byproducts and some residues, you know, things like that, a good mineral package, compare that cost to what it costs you to lease pasture today. And you might be surprised, That's you know, point, yeah. Because if I can feed that pear in confinement for $2 a day and it's costing me $60 per pear, you know, per month to release grass, that's a wash. Yeah. Yeah. Plus I'm not having the, my, I'm not taking a $75,000 pickup and beating it over the pasture every day to check. Yeah. Well, and then depending on your grass lease, you're also not putting money into fertilizer. If you're, you know, if that's part of your grass lease, you maybe not have any money or time invested in fixing as much fence or you know, spraying, things like that. So yeah, I mean, on a tangible cost level, it looks like it, it shakes out as a wash, but like if you dig into it further, it, it may be cheaper to, to do that. Well, and, and then the other thing that we have to consider in our operations, because I have this job on top of our cows and my husband has a trucking job and the farming on top of the cows. And so, um, you know, sometimes having them contained where they're supposed to be and being able to just run a feed truck by them. Well, honestly, because if I'm supposed to be here doing this podcast with you and somebody calls and says the cows are out, I, I've still got to do this. Or if I'm doing a meeting, you know, across the state and I'm like, I have to be there. there. Yeah. So, so some of those opportunity costs, you know, there's, there's a trade-off for some of those things that it may cost me a little bit more to do this with my cows, but it frees me up more to do this with my trucking or whatever. So overall, this is a better deal for us. And, you know, this is, this is what's going to make the whole thing work. I'm a very big proponent of systems thinking. Like if I make this decision on this end, how does it impact you know, uh, my marketing date or my marketing weight or any of those things, my breeding date, the nutrition available to my cows at breeding. If I make this change over here, what does that do to my whole system? And um, so for us, that's, that's also, that's maybe a perk of that is that I'm not running all over the county trying to check cows on my pasture leases, you know, when I don't have all day to go do that, that kind of thing. So 
it just depends. And I'm not saying that's the right way to do it. I'm saying that everybody needs to work through what are, you know, think through all those aspects and then work out what's going to work best for them. Yeah. You have to do what works for you. And just as a side note, if you had needed to cancel today because the cows were out, I totally would have understand. I'm sure that <laughs> I feel like when you work in the beef industry and you have cows and you like people generally understand that. Whereas if you work for like Google or something, they may not have understood. I would have understood and totally would have accommodated that. But you're right. Cause like they always get out when you're gone or something like that, but everybody has to do you know, that again, that's what we were just talking about is that if there's a thousand ways to do it and you have to do what works well for you in your own situation, because many people in the beef industry, I don't have any percentage off the top of my head, but it's not uncommon for people to work full time jobs and also basically have a full time job with cows that they work from 6 p.m. to 10 p.m. and on the weekends. And so I don't know what that percentage is either, but I will tell you this for all the cows that there are in the sandhills, which is a lot. Uh, and, and all those operations have, you know, 500 to 1,000 head operations. The average cow-calf producer in Nebraska still only has like 50 head. And so that tells me that there's a lot of us out there working those second jobs and running some cows to bring the average down from what you know it is up where, you know, that's the thing where cattle is king. Yeah, absolutely. I think nation, I don't think that number is far off. I think that's pretty representative of the whole United States. I think the last like census said that the average cow si cow herd was like 43.1 cows or something like that, you know. It, and, and that yeah. makes sense. When I was in Tennessee, I think it was 25 in, ten in Tennessee, you know. And so probably the national average is probably 40 something. So that probably makes sense. But I imagine those big range states like Montana pull the average up there, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So Earlier, you mentioned the drought, which I feel like we can't do anything without talking about it because it's a, it's significant and it's very far reaching and it's affects, it's it affects everybody. Not every year, but it's always affecting someone. This it's year, coming like, to a state near you, right? <laughs> Anytime, right. and, and it may not. And spoiler alert: it may not be leaving your state for a while. <laughs> exactly. I think Montana. I looked at the drought monitor last week, and Montana. Most of Montana is was not in a drought when I looked and like for the past two or three years, Montana had been in drought. And so like there probably got like cross fingers, you know, like stay away type thing going on. According to the drought monitor, Western Nebraska is finally out of a drought after three years. But I tell you what, it's pretty dry right now. So I don't know what constitutes a drought, but it's pretty dry at the moment. And that's a little concerning again, but um, it does come to you quite frequently if you are in the midsection of the country where we raise most of the cows. That is correct. So in the terms that you were, you know, speaking about the drought and, you know, drought is causing people, as we know, to have to make some harder culling decisions, cull a little harder, you know, to get through the, you know, basically to get through the drought. Um, so, you know, a lot of, a lot of the thing that I try to get across to people um, when we're talking about cull cows Whole cows are about 20% of your gross income in a, in a cow calf operation. And so really they're nothing to sneeze at. And uh, a big hidden cost that people uh, miss sometimes is cow depreciation because you don't write a check for it, but it's a real cost to you. And the national average of how many calves a cow produces is between three and four which the first time I saw that, I was like, that can't be right. And that's, yeah, that seems so low, but it's, you know, but I think it's probably is correct because you got to factor in every heifer that didn't save her calf and every calf that was born early in a snowstorm, um, the cow that didn't rebreed for whatever reason, you know, when you start really trying to track that everybody's average is about there. And so, what you uh, have to consider then is if you paid um, $2,000 for that cow and you sold her for $800 as a coal way up and she had three calves, I think that is a, yeah, that is a $400 depreciation cost on that cow. So how do we manage depreciation? I guess that's one thing, you know, um, and and so that's something that we work with people or I liked, I have done presentations working with people on is um, 
you know, especially like say you're in the sand hills um, and you don't have a lot of feeding options uh, because they have grass or grass or they have hay made from grass and that's what they have. And, um, you know, maybe they, they can have a little bit in their budget to bring in a, a cube supplement for the winter, but they don't, we're not talking corn and wet distillers and silage and things that they can say, okay, well, this cow didn't breed. So we're going to put a little weight on her and, and then we're going to run her to the sale barn. They, they're going to put way too much into that. So what are some options? And so some of those options with the cull cow can be to run the bulls longer, uh, preg check where you early. So, you know, you know, which ones are bred up where you want to calve. Um, another option is that people just, calve up to a certain date and anything that hasn't calved at that point they send to the sale barn um i have some issue with that understand the premise behind that but you also get cows calving at the sale barn i was just going to say that like that ooh, that that's not a situation i personally would want to be in there's there's a little risk to that because then um now you did have a bred cow that was worth quite a bit now you have a cow that just calved and you have a pair that you have a you have an at-risk infant now <laughs> yeah he wants to touch with a 10-foot pole um the other thing that can be a risk is if i'm me as the buyer um i buy these cows and they're calving now for the next 60 days or whatever 50 days whatever it is on your that when you sold them i run some risk that the stress of the being at the sale barn for two days, then getting on the cattle pot and coming to my house that I'm going to have a dead calf the next morning because somebody aborted or I've got an early one and he's not going to make it, whatever. And I've had it go both ways where I woke up the next morning and had a live calf nursing and I woke up and she slept one, you know. And so there are there are downsides to that. But that is one thing is to run your bulls longer and, and then sell Another thing people do uh, is then preg check early and then anything that's open, they'll breed for a fall instead of spring and and then sell those. Uh, obviously, a, a fall cow in Nebraska doesn't have the value that um, a spring bred cow does, um, but she may, not this year, but she may have more value than a open cull cow. But we're also in, in a tremendously weird cull cow market right now. Uh, which is not common. So a lot of times a bred cow, you know, and and then depending on where you are in Nebraska, you know, if you're close enough to the border, you may be able to pick up some Kansas buyers for that fall, bred fall cow that, that would have a longer growing season, might have some different feed resources or somebody in a confinement system, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether I she's spring or fall calf because I got to feed her in confinement either way. Yeah. Right. And so we fall calves. So, it you know, it doesn't scare like I live in southeast Kansas and, you know, buying a fall calver out in Nebraska, that doesn't that, you know, I have no risk. Yeah, it doesn't scare me at all. And so some of those things and then, you know, watching that trend for um, there is a seasonal trend to slaughter cow prices. And so, um, you know, typically um, end of the winter, November, December, that's the all time low of the year. And that's partially because that's when a lot of people are dumping the cows that came up open and things. Um, and they tend to be thinner because they just came out of lactation, things like that. And then you, after the first of the year, you get, you know, coming up again, you get into grilling season and, and that cow, that goes up a little bit and usually peaks before Labor Day and kind of starts down again. So, so again, you know, if people can, can look at some of those cull cow, um, options for either managing marketing as breads. Um, if you do have some feed resources that you can hold over, um, you know, and then put a little bit more back on her after her lactation curve is done. Um, you know, maybe you hit those different markets. The thing is that you always got to do the math on it because you can put a whole lot of feed resources into her and still end up getting about the same thing for her, um, depending on what feed resources cost you you're in a drought feed resources are awful high is you know it may not that extra hundred pounds on her might be a wash and you just wasted those feed resources on a 
good cow that you want, you, you know, you wasted them on her when you needed to save them for a really good cow. So that may not work out. You have a year where you had a lot of rain. You've got some really good quality corn stalks out there. Distillers isn't all that expensive in comparison. And you, you know, feed her a little supplement, let her get out there and graze those corn stalks. You put a body condition score on her. You get past that, that dump. You get to the first of the year when things are ticking up, you dump her back then. Some years, you know, that might be a, a positive for you. Um, so I think it's a thing that you, you can't just say, well, this is how we manage our cull cows, period, every year. I think you need to look at it every year and, and decide, you know, what might be, what might be best. Another thing is that some people will do an, uh, an age dispersion and whether those are good cows still cranking along or not, if they get to the age of 10 or something, they do an age dispersion. They get a pretty decent um, price for those cows, especially if they're bred. Um, and that helps them manage that cow depreciation because now without putting extra feed resources in her, because I don't have them because I'm in the sand hills or whatever, I'm in this grass country, um, you know, I, I kind of, I'm maximized the best that I could on the value of that cow sold her as a bred, you know, age dispersion cow. Yeah. I've heard of people doing that. Like, um, they didn't do it at 10. I can't remember who it was, but they, I think it was like seven, you know, if cow hit seven, they were, they were moved on, not because they didn't like them, but because they just, that was what they did. But I agree with reevaluating the cull cow strategy every year because markets change, feed costs change, you know, nothing is static, right? So the only thing that's consistent is the change is that change is going to happen. So that makes, um, a lot of sense. You were mentioning like some alternative feeds there. So like, you know, dis you were mentioning wet distillers. We feed a lot of dry distillers down here in Southeast Kansas. Uh, I, we actually live, my husband and I live only about 10 miles from a, um, an ethanol plant. So dry distillers are in abundance and that is like a alternative food source or feed source. And that kind of helps reduce food waste, which is a tactic or which is a thing I'm very passionate about, like food waste in general and, and tactics to reduce that. And I love talking about that. So, um, you know, how did you get involved in that vein? I know that you have, that is also something you focus on. So kind of how did you get involved in that vein of work with, you know, alternative feed sources and stuff? You know, for one thing, because with this job, I'm in a very integrated area. And so at the Panhandle Research and Extension Center, we have a lot of uh, agronomists doing research on, um, you know, dry edible beans like pinto beans, red beans, um, Navy beans, that kind of thing. And we grow a lot of those here. Eastern side of the state is pretty much just corn and soybeans. And then from there, we got everything else. So we got sugar beets, we got dry edible beans, um, you know, um, you name it. We got field peas, we got all kinds of different, we got some different human consumption commodity crops that they don't grow the other side of the state. And so because we are an integrated team out here, um, that's Pretty much how I got started in some of that. When those crops do not make it for human consumption and they have to be pulled out of that, um, you know, stand, if they don't make that standard for whatever reason, they have to be pulled out of that market. What else can we do to that? Can, what can we do with that crop um, so that we're utilizing it and it's not just wasted? Um, but then you know, can we establish some sort of salvage value on that so that the producer doesn't hit such highs and lows in, you know, this is what I can get for it, human consumption. It doesn't go for human consumption. I've got it sitting on my back porch. Nobody wants it. You know, okay, now the salvage value isn't going to be up here, but it's something. And so that's really where I got to doing a lot of the sugar beet for cattle research, the field piece for cattle, the dry beans and that kind of thing. Gotcha. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I did not know that peas were a cattle crop until um, we bought some cows from a ranch in North Dakota. Yeah, about five or six years ago when I followed their Facebook page and they were chopping peas. I think it's, they were, they said they were chopping peas for silage. I guess you call that peelage. I don't know. I think that that is, I don't know. I think that's a great marketing term for it, peelage, but. Um, you should call it that. Um, yeah, there's two types of peas. There's forage peas and those are grown like in a mixture with either by themselves or with, um, you know, oats. A lot of times there'll be a mixture in an oat forage crop that makes phenomenal hay or good silage. And then there is a uh, grain pea 
and you let it go all the way to green. And then that goes either for like split pea soup for humans. There's a huge life, um, like pet food in the industry, pet food industry uses a lot of field peas uh, as the grain that goes into, um, because it's high protein. So into foods, um, but that market is easily saturated. And so once we've maxed out or not made those two, you know, where does it go? And so that's where a lot of the, the field key research for cattle then came to be for that. But the other, you know, you were talking about that um, waste and things. The other thing I do a lot of times, I guess, cause I'm a mom, I have four kids and a stepson. So I'm like five kids in my life and I um, always get chosen to do the mom things. And so um, I've talked a lot to elementary kids and high school kids and FFA kids, 4-H kids, whatever, on um, what phenomenally great things ruminants do for the environment. And one of those things is that, as you were saying, there's, there, there's a lot of waste out there if we don't find a use for it. So, you know, the clothes you wear result in cotton um, burrs, cotton hulls, you know and cottonseed meal and, you know, um, distillers is a byproduct of the ethanol industry and uh, wet corn gluten feed is a byproduct of like corn oil industry, whatever. And um, so those byproducts, citrus pulp is, is a byproduct. And so that's fed a lot in Florida. So a lot of these things would end up in a landfill but we're able to feed them to ruminants and then they can convert that into a protein source that we can use for humans and easily digest and get lots of nutrients out of. So that's kind of a passion for me too, because I'm like, wait, 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 why are, why are cattle getting such a bad rap for being bad for the environment? They are fantastic for the environment. They even eat leftover cookies. And at my house, that's always been a hard concept to understand because we all have leftover cookies. <laughs> but you know, if, if, if baked goods ha, um, go past their expiration date and have to remove them from the store, well, what do you do with them? Well, you can throw those in a finishing ration for cattle. So anyway, lots of cool stuff. Yeah. Very. I mean, they really are cattle are great recyclers, but also great upcyclers too. So we, um, I grew up about 25 minutes from a Russell Stover's candy factory and yeah. And so, um, a friend of mine, her dad, they had they had pigs, so it's similar. He would go and get like a you know a truck of the of the candy that had been dropped on the floor, you know, like powdered sugar that had expired, things like that. And he would mix that in to both his cattle and his hogs' finishing ration. Like you know, he wasn't just like here you go, here's a bunch of turtles, eat just this. No, no it was mixed in. No. You have but, to work um, with your nutritionist to blend yeah. that in correctly. But yeah, yeah, but it was really that was my first exposure to that, and I couldn't have been more than like twelve, and so that was really interesting for me to, to learn that. And that, I, I wonder if that really sparked my, my, what I'm, you know, focusing on now and stuff, but I, you know, I think it's really cool. We have to spread that to people so that they appreciate it and understand. Yes. That. I mean, you ever wondered what happened to leftover pumpkins after Halloween? I feed them to my cows. So yeah, exactly. And you can, you know, if you have a pumpkin field adjacent to a corn residue field, you can give them both of those at the same time and, and they'll, clean up both really nicely. But, you know, there again, I'm like, there's a lot of waste that people don't think about that being a waste, you know? And, and so what do we do with it? How do we get rid of it? Nine times out of 10 cattle take care of it for us, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I last year, um, so I have two kids, I have a two year old and a six and a half year old and adjusting to having two kids, you know, everything takes more time. So I just neglected in the hustle and bustle things to throw the pumpkins from the fall into the pasture. And so they just kind of, you know, like liquefied and melted on the porch until I actually threw away the remains. And this spring, um, I had pumpkin vines growing out of my flower beds. And I just last night picked the pumpkins and we used them to decorate the porch, but I took the vines and there was a couple squishy pumpkins. I took them over and threw them into the feeder pen where we do our freezer beef cattle. And this morning they are all gone. So, I mean, it just, it, they just, they're fabulous at just helping clean things up. So they do. Yeah. I've been processing my sweet corn for two darn weeks now. And, oh, gosh. and I've been like 
handing them over to, you know, all the husk and stuff over to the calves. And so, yeah, cattle do a tremendous job of cleaning up the environment and they don't get near enough credit for that. Absolutely. We need to blast that from the, from the mountaintops. Um, well, we've been talking a lot about your work life and I know that you mentioned that your personal life and your work life meld very well, you know, are almost seamless. Right. And so I think that's a sign of actual happiness when you're what you're doing in your spare time you're doing at maybe work. it is <laughs> it's helpful but you know when you aren't working on your farm and and with your husband and when you're not at your actual job you know your job there at um it with you uh unl how do you do you fill your time with any hobbies or do you have any time to fill with hobbies i used to run some um i've run quite a few half marathons i used to do some of that but uh it just seems like uh you know, the time just gets away anymore. Um, and I, I will, if in the winter time, once in a while, I will, um, I will let myself read like a, a suspense thriller kind of thing, you know? And, and so, and I don't know why, cause I hate scary movies. And so I don't know why <laughs> I'll just read the heck out of that if I can. You can close um, the book though. And you can I like guess, walk away from I, it. You don't I, have to keep watching the movie. I guess. So, um, I, I do like, um, you know, mystery suspense thriller things once in a while. I just don't have enough time for that kind of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, um, we have a granddaughter now, and so that's pretty entertaining. But, um, yeah, I just don't have a lot of um, time for hobbies and things. Yeah, that's understandable. That's kind of cons that's consistent kind of across the board, I think, for for people. So animal health is constantly threatened by the exposure of mycotoxins in feed. The monitoring of fungal toxins has become indispensable in the feed industry and in animal production. DSM offers a range of analytical services to assess the mycotoxin contamination and solutions to combat mycotoxins. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash mycotoxin dash survey. Well, you were talking about books. We ask these last questions to everybody that comes on the podcast. So you were mentioning in book there that you, you know, you like the suspense thrillers and things like that. But first, what is your favorite beef or cattle related book or resource? Um, probably biased to some degree because I have two degrees from UNL and I work for UNL. But I feel like one of the best resources I've come across is our beef.unl.edu website. And um, the reason being, our entire team contributes to that. And so if I have, you know, um, a reproduction question, if I have a genetics question, if I have a nutrition question, I can find, I can usually find somebody that has done some research on that and that'll show up on that website. Um, we write um, articles for our Beef Watch electronic newsletter every month. And so that's on that website. And so I guess I just, um, that is a real go-to resource for me because um, our entire team contributes to it. And so, yeah. Okay. Those sound like good resources though. The Beef Watch, like a monthly e-newsletter. I put that in the notes for our guests, for our audience, if they want to. Opinion podcast that goes with that, if they'd rather drive the tractor and listen to it rather than read it. So, you know, those are just those type things, I guess I dig out a lot. Okay. Well, I, that's good. Those are great. I hadn't heard those before. So I put those in the show notes for our audience. Um, okay. So you, you already walked into this one, but what is a book not related to the beef industry that you are currently reading or maybe your favorite one so far? Oh, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I've been thinking about that this, this entire time and I don't even know what to tell you. Uh, a book that I have read that I do not read enough is the Bible. That was the first thing that came to my mind. I'm like, well, I could spend more time there. Um, I, I don't know, leadership books. Um, you know, there's um, John Maxwell wrote quite a bit of leadership things. And um, I guess I would, I would read more of that if I had more time. Um, there's a quote from John Maxwell that says, um, you know, never do something that somebody else could do. And so um, I try to keep that in mind a lot, like in my, because we all have to work many jobs and everything has to keep moving. I, I think about that a lot. Like, am I doing something that I could pretty easily 
hand over to someone else um, so that I could do the one thing that I I am the person who needs to do that. And so um, we have incorporated that to an extent at home. For example, uh, I do know how to run a feed truck. When I was at Bushland as a postdoc, I spent a lot of time running a feed truck, but I don't actually run the feed truck at home because there's two other people that can run that feed truck. The person who needs to be walking through those cattle, checking for illness, checking poop color. That, that's mm-hmm. a terrible thing to say on a podcast, no. but you know. No, that's not horrible. That's um, a you know, podcast. So, no, I mean, the person who knows the most and can pick up the most nuances of differences in, in behavior and illness the quickest is me. So I need to be doing that instead of doing something that someone else on our operation is capable of doing. Because, because for example, I had to be gone this last week and um, for my job. And so, you know, jokingly Todd said well nothing died while you were gone and I'm like well that's a good thing but sure enough I had to doctor something just the minute I walked through the pen I was like oh they missed that one you know and so I guess that that leadership quote has stuck with me because that's part of being a really good leader is that you get people doing the things not that what they're doing doesn't matter it's not important it's it's critically important those cattle have to be fed in a confinement situation every single day. And they have to be fed right. Um, but it is wasting time and valuable resources for me to be doing something that someone else is very capable of doing if there's a thing that I need to be doing that they don't do as well or can't do as well or whatever. Um, so it doesn't mean that I'm above doing that job because I can jump in there and do it. And I probably need to, if, if something comes up for them, you know, I can fill in, but thinking through those things that what is the most efficient way to run this organization and utilize everybody's resources and, and abilities the best. Mm-hmm. I completely agree with that in our household. Um, I, it, it's a very similar on the cattle side, but even more so on the family running a household side. Like I have a house cleaner, I can clean my house and I'm capable of it. And I'm not above that. But if I, someone else is cleaning my house, I have more time to be a mom. I have more time to work on, you know, my several side businesses. So, or, you know, my several business I've started and like, I can sell our freezer beef, but the house cleaner can't sell our freezer beef. So house companies do that. So um, I think that's a, a fabulous mindset to have. And, and I, I applaud people who recognize that and, you know, incorporate that into because it is delegation and outsourcing and it makes the whole kind of all the gears work more seamlessly together. So that's great. I don't know what book that was out of, but that was a, a good. I can't remember the name of it, but John Maxwell wrote it and it was something about leadership. And now I can't remember it because I haven't read it in a really, really, really long time. Yeah. I'm sure you could Google it and figure it out. Because yeah, you I'm going to put, put John Maxwell leadership book in the yeah, show notes and yeah. audience listeners, you guys can. They can um, look for Google it. That. Yeah. It's, but it is a good recommendation. Okay. And then our last question here is, when you think of someone that you look up to or admire, what is a trait that they possess that has enabled them to be successful? I think I have had tremendous mentors that um, that tried to match people's abilities um, with the assignments that they were given and cared enough to know, to learn enough about people to figure out what their strengths were and um, you know, to help them um, develop those strengths and and help them, you know, really blossom in their strengths, but also help them recognize their weaknesses and, and work on those a little bit, but in a way that isn't critical, you know. And so I think I've had some, I've been fortunate enough to have several good mentors through my life that, um, that helped me develop. And so I guess that's something that I've always tried to do with my own kids and my grad students and things like that is to try to, um, what are your strengths and where's your passion? 
you know, helping younger kids find their passion. And it may not be the same thing as mine and that's okay. But, you know, how do you develop that? And how do you be the best at that? And how do you learn to recognize where you have room for improvement in other areas and learn to accept yourself as these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses and this I can take off and really roll with and this I probably need to work on a little bit, you know, but I can overall make myself a better person. And so, yeah, I've had, I've been very blessed my whole life to have some very, very good mentors. That's great. I mean, that's really encouraging. And you are actually not the first person to say pretty much that exact quality. And I cannot remember which of my guests in the past have said it, but that that quality of like investing time into someone and helping them become their best, kind of like, a, you know, you've heard the term like kingmaker type thing, kind of along that lines. You're not the first person to have brought that up on this podcast. So um, I think that that's really great to hear that you've had those people in your life and that you also said it's so important to you. You're probably doing that to others as well. So that's really encouraging. Um, sadly, that is all the time we have for today. I could sit here and talk to you about cows and their environmental sustainability and different kinds of operational strategies and things like that for another hour, I'm certain. But um, unfortunately, I do have to let you go. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Wilkie, for joining us here today on the Beef Podcast. If people want more information about your work, I, we didn't even get to talk more about your research, but if people want to learn more about that or information from the Panhandle Research Center, I have the Beef Watch e-news. I have the beef.unl.edu website. Are there other places that they can go to learn more or reach out to you? Um, they can, my email address is kjenkins2 at unl.edu. So K-J-E-N-K-I-N-S followed by number two at unl.edu. And so, you know, when people have questions or they're like, we have this resource, but I'm not sure, you know, how much of it to feed or, you know, whatever. I mean, that those are, that's kind of the extension side of our job is we try to help producers um, with rations, management, that kind of thing. So, you know, if you shoot me an email and say, I'd really rather talk to you about this, you know, here's my phone number, call me when it works or something like that, you know, we can more than happy to work with people. Well, great. I have put your email address in there, kjenkins2 at unl.edu. Again, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom and your knowledge about your segment of the beef industry. We really appreciate it. And um, for the audience that's out there listening, we hope that you will join us next week on the Beef Podcast. And, and thank you again, Dr. Wilson. Well, thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. Great. All right. We will talk to you all next week. Thank you.